you parents can thank me later for the sticks, or thank David, really, whoever it is. Uh, so hey, Merry Christmas. It's really, really, really great to be with you. Thanks for making us a part of your Christmas and the celebration. We know that it's a busy time. Uh, do you have anybody in your life who is, those of us old people would say like MacGyver, uh, but for those of you who are less than 40, perhaps, uh, anybody in your life who, like, they're the type of person who, whenever something bad happens, they just see possibility, like where the rest of us curl up in the fetal position, they, they just see an adventure, they just see something exciting. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? Like, anybody in your life like that? Like, they're the perfect, like, if you ever get a flat tire, they're who you want to be with because they could fix a flat tire with a gum wrapper and a zip tie. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'm, whatever is the polar opposite of that person, that's me. Uh, but as luck would have it, my wife is very much that person. In fact, I was thinking about this this week when we were pretty new married. Uh, we, we lived somewhere else and we were, we were wanting to learn how to longboard. And so in the early stages of longboarding, my style is baby steps. Like I just like to like, learn slowly and avoid scars. But my wife's style is to run like headfirst into the brick wall and then figure out what she learned from that experience. And so we had these brand new longboards and she took hers while I was at home like practicing balancing on one leg. She took hers up on the rims. We were in Billings with our friend Mary and there were some big hills there. And when she came back, she was bloody, but you didn't immediately know it because she's one of those people. So she supermaned out on the asphalt, tore up both of her elbows, uh, but she ducked behind a bush, took her shirt off, wrapped it around her elbow, borrowed a vest from a friend, and that's how she showed up at my house. So you, you know somebody like that? Uh, I also have a very good friend who's very much like that. Again, the perfect person to end up in a difficult situation with. And several years ago, uh, he worked a deal with my dad, which was kind of ironic because he's also very much like that. Uh, my friend is a hot rod guy, and so he worked a deal to get this dilapidated 60s-era Jeep truck thingamajig. The rest of us would call it junk. To them, it was treasure. Uh, but he worked a deal to buy that to turn it into a next car. And so there was a Monday where he and I jumped in his truck and his flatbed trailer, and we made the drive back to Laurel. Uh, we knew that my dad wasn't going to be home, and so as we as we pulled into town, in my head, I'm going, please have a key in the ignition. Please have a key in the ignition. Please have a key in the ignition. When we pulled up, uh, there were eight tires involved, and one of them wasn't flat. So we pull up to this house, and you got to picture this old build uh, house with a single car detached garage. And we pulled up to the front of it. Uh, first of all, the windows were boarded up, but that's a different story because this one was a rental unit that wasn't being rented yet. And so here's the house, and then here's the garage, right? Little pathway in between. Over here was this way overgrown 50-year-old juniper bush. And in the driveway with the front bumper touching the, gra the garage was the Jeep thing with four flat tires. And directly behind it was a 1966 Chevy Impala that also had three of its four tires flat, or it had three of four flat tires, and it was like touching the bumper of the Jeep. So we pulled up, and I thought, we're going to be here for the rest of our lives. This is horrible. So as I'm panicked and crying and calling for help, actually what I was doing was hoping that there was a key in the ignition. There was no key in the ignition. The door was locked. As I'm trying to do the obvious things, my friend, who's like MacGyver, he had gone to the back of his truck and ret retrieved a floor jack, brought it back to the back end of the Impala, placed it under the, 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 rear, the rear end of the Impala, jacked it up, and once the tires got off the ground, he's like, look at that, I've got like the car on a leash. Uh, because at that point, he, he essentially had the thing on this little four-foot leash could take it anywhere you want. Only problem is you couldn't steer it. So if you don't care at all about Jesus this morning, we've, we've now given your kids implements of harm and taught you how to steal a car. <laughs> 
So he needed to learn how to, ideally we could turn the thing, right, to get it out of the driveway. And so he disappeared to an alley, came back with this piece of wire, and I'm like, what are we going to do now? He fished it into the car door, uh, un undid the lock, opened the car door, put the thing in neutral because it's old era, so it doesn't, you know, nothing locks in the thing, the steering column doesn't lock. And so he said, okay, so you come stand here. And so I was holding the steering wheel and pushing while he had the dog on its leash, and we just drug it out to the middle of the street, to which I'm going, what are we going to do now? But people like this don't worry about blocking streets for extended time. So we just <laughs> left, left the truck, or excuse me, the Impala in the middle of the street, he backed the trailer in, and we used a winch to get the Jeep on, never seen one of those things, pulled the thing out of the driveway, pushed the Impala back in the driveway, and bam, we were having lunch by noon. It was amazing. And I remember leaving there and my phone ringing a little bit later because my dad got there to figure out and saw that it was gone. And he said, uh, how did you do that? And I said, uh, you've been out MacGyvered by MacGyver. But here's my, here's my question. And here's kind of where I just want to explore Christmas for just a little bit. And I know parents are going, you're not going to talk very long, are you? And I'm not. But here's my question. What, what, what if... What if Christmas and the baby and the manger and the wise men and the whole thing that we have many of us so much familiarity with that it's even hard to hear the story again, what if it begs us to see God through the lens of possibility and invitation? Like what if it begs us not to see God as this punishing angry being who's mostly anticipating our failures so that he can punish us? What if everything about the Christmas story tells a story about a God who's been engaged with people for eons and who's constantly inviting people into a story that's ultimately not about them, but much more exciting than the one they'll live on their own? Like, what if Christmas begs us to see God through this lens of invitation and possibility. It reminds me a little bit of the story, you, you've probably heard this one, it's a bit proverbial, of uh, the two shoe companies in the 1800s, both unbeknownst to the other, sent salesmen to Africa to, to ascertain what the market for shoes was in Africa. And the first one, when he got there, sent back a telegraph and it said something like, uh, bad news, uh, they don't wear shoes in Africa. And the other one, who, who saw the same scene, uh, sent back a much different telegraph. It said, great news. Nobody in Africa has shoes. I guess my question is, I don't know where you're at in your God story. I don't know how you think of God and how you've experienced God and how God's been represented to you. But what if Christmas and the innocence of a baby and, 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 and these people who were impoverished, who, who become his parents, what if it begs us to see God through this lens of invitation? Like think, think of how the story starts. Uh, there's two versions in the Gospels. We have the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke that both give us uh, the events that will lead to funny videos like the one Lenny made. Listen to the story uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew uh, as told through the experience of Joseph, the, the fiancé that Mary went to find once she figured out she was pregnant. Uh, th this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. You could ask your teacher about that one. Uh, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And part of what we've explored in the past is here's two people who already had a plan. And God shows up and invites them into, what if this flat tire could be a great thing? But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid, because that's ultimately what we experience in these moments that require this. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here's the part, portion that I just I want to beg us to think about for just a moment. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? Why, why do we need to know that that's his name? Because he will save his people from their sins. 
Now, there's a word that'll make you squirm, uh, a word that most of us don't use in our everyday lexicon, the word sin, and if we do use it, that's almost freaky in its own right. Here's the question, because if all this is true, if it's true that God invites us and that God invites us to see him through this lens of possibility, then we would have to do some work on what exactly then is the sin that Christmas is saving us from. And here would be my question. Is it, is it a moral thing? Is sin primarily God, because he's God, gets to make a list of do's and don'ts, and when you break those, that's called sin, and that earns you punishment from God? Is, is, I'm not asking whether or not that, that those events can occur. Of course they can occur. But, but is that primarily what this story means by sin? Like, is sin that? And there's some great scholarship being done on this that would suggest that's a very Western, a very Western understanding of sin. But if we zoom out and we see the lens through different continents and different eras, what we're left with is a story that sounds a little bit different because what it would say is that sin, while including moral standards that were broken, sin is more about wasting an invitation. It's like being invited to the ball And you decided not to go. And there's this rabbi who once told a lot of stories that sounded just like this. Sin, therefore, becomes a vocational violation and less a moral one. We could think of it like this. Oh, that's the wrong guitar, right, Rob? Like, what is sin is the question we're asking. Now... One could have a lot of responses to that. One is that you're traumatized. (laughs) But seriously, like, was that wrong? Because you shouldn't break a guitar and there's laws against that stuff. Or or was it wrong because it was wasteful? Because $96 on Amazon could actually help somebody because you just spent it to make an illustration. But you get the point. What if sin is less about you broke a rule you're not supposed to make, break, and more about you wasted an opportunity that the holy, that God himself, that Jesus offered you. And sin is far more about wasting said opportunity. Think of how the story goes. Story I want to suggest, uh, and I'm, I'm going to put this here only because I forget who God is all the time, which will make sense in a second. The story starts with God, and if you don't get caught up in the years and the length of time and science and all that thing, the story starts, doesn't it, with a God who creates. And contrary to all the other Mesopotamia ideas I know of, this God doesn't, he doesn't abhor creation, he doesn't resent it, he doesn't see it as this temporary stopping point. This God loves creation, something Hellenites should be able to appreciate in our affection for the outdoors. This God looks at his creation and every part of it and says, this is awesome. So much so that this God invites people into the story with him. And he loves people. He treasures people. He says, here's the opportunity. Here's the possibility. Here's the story we can be a part of together. It's my story. You get to play a role in it. And yet people's response very early in the story is what? They turn their back on God. Which raises its own question. And it's a question that we can we can easily take for granted, but the logical question would become, how does God respond to that? Is is God vindictive? Is he insecure? What will be God's relational response to people's rejection? And what we see in the story is that God 
almost instantly came to people. And he says, what, what are you doing hiding in the garden? I made you. Who told you you were naked? This God who constantly comes back for a relationship, back for a relationship. And people, what we see, their response once again is to reject God. They again turn their back on God. And, and if you're familiar with the story and it's, it's count in Genesis, you see that there is this really honest season where God contemplates lots of things like a, just a reset. And in the end, what we see is a God who again returns to people. This time th- through a guy named Abraham and his people. And he says to Abram, listen, Abram, I'm going to bless you, but this won't be about you. The point of blessing you isn't because it's all about you. I'm going to bless you, Abram, and you'll get to be a blessing to others. Your family will be the conduit. You're the repairmen and women who are going to put the story back together. You're going to put it back on the rails. And again, what we see is that Abraham and his people, like you and I would if we were them, and like we do, They turn their back on God. And this is like, how long-suffering is this God? This is a great theological question. Uh, The the Hebrew word there is this word hesed. Like, how how committed is this God to this endeavor? And what we see is God comes to them again. Uh, This time, hundreds of years later, as people are crying out in Egypt, they've been there for a long time, hundreds of years. They've been told they're less than human. And they start calling out to God. And God, through a, a guy named Moses, comes to them again and said, I've heard your cry and I'm going to lead you out into the opportunity. Like, flat tires don't have to be a bad thing. We, we can turn this into a story. And this time, in Egypt, these people, they, they learned from Egyptian culture these other ways that they, they, they kind of messed with this idea of God. And, and, and they, they come up with this idea of a tabernacle. God, as they're leaving, says, okay, build me a tent, is essentially, at the risk of trivializing it, what he says. This time we're going to build a tent. And, and, and there's not a lot new going on other than a God who is going, okay, so like me in the garden, that didn't work out. Me showing up and talking to Abraham, that didn't necessarily. We, there's been these surgeries we've introduced. Like none of it's going so well. So, so he says, Let, let's, let's build a tent, a, a tabernacle. It didn't actually look like a teepee, but you get the point. And that's going to symbolize that my desire to be with you. And yet again, what we see in the story is People turn their back on God. The tabernacle becomes what religious people and institutions, no different than me and everyone in this room can become, it becomes empty. And once again, there's this question of what's God going to do? And then God comes to them again, this time through a king named David. And David, we now know, he has this incredible united monarchy. It's Israel at its greatest. It's the king that Israel anticipates coming when Jesus is born. But David leads them to this great thing. And this time around... They've learned new forms of God with usness, and they build, they build God a brick and mortar building, a temple. And we can get all kinds of caught up in it and become judgmental of buildings or miss the point entirely. It's about a God going, what, what do I have to do to convince you of the invitations and the possibility of following me? It's, it's God's with usness. And yet again, People turn their back on God. The temple is destroyed. And if you're, if, you're, if you're not a student of history, what you may not know is what's going on when Jesus is born is these people going, okay, we've turned our back on God. What's God going to do now? And then we pick up in the Matthew story. And then 
Listen to the way Matthew's telling this story. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What if Christmas begs us to view God through the lens of invitation and possibility? Not not a God who trivializes right and wrong. I'm not suggesting any of those things. Virtue, morality, of course those are important things. But, But what if when we zoom out, what we see is a bigger picture about wastefulness? Really? About a God who says, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's not what that was made for. And to whatever degree it angers and frustrates us that we just wasted that, maybe that's the point. Is Christmas is about a God who says, what, what do you, this isn't about my being angry with you. This is about my doing all I can to invite you into the story. Which would lead to this question. What, what, if, what if Christmas is not just an idea? What if it's not just a cultural phenomenon? What if it's a perpetual annual reminder that the God of the universe invites you and me and us, us is probably the most important part, to be a part of a story that's ultimately about God. And that all of us, whatever it is we're dealing with, be it divorce or death or cancer or, or just great victory, the invitation is the same. A God who says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What would it be like if you became a part of my story? And what would it be like for you if if 2020, listen, we all know what's going to happen. The next couple days we get busy. We kind of, we can't even remember our name by this time tomorrow. We've we've ate so much sugar and we've gone through so many things and we've chased so many kids. But what if, say on the 27th, there was this revisiting of the idea of what's, what's the invitation God has for you in 2020? And listen, if you're not comfortable attaching that to Jesus or church or Nary, God is secure enough to take you as far as you're willing to go. What's the next right thing that you know God's been whispering to you? And what if Christmas is a way to cling to this idea that God wants to be seen through the lens of invitation and possibility? That he would love for us to stop wasting said invitation. I'd like to pray for you. God, thanks Lord that this, this moment that we celebrate is about more than it's more about more than this and this space and this room and these words and these songs and the food and the gifts, but that somehow in, in our day, in our way, you've, you've, you've built a monument that says the God of the universe wants you and wants me and wants us. And the God that we all, in some sense, are are given the same opportunity, the opportunity to say yes to the next right thing you have for us. And so my prayer, God, would be that whether that deals with exercise or the Holy Bible, uh, that you give us the courage to step into that next right thing. Uh, That by your grace and mercy, as the dust of this season settles just a tad, that, that we'd even be reminded of this moment and whatever exchange of ideas has occurred between us and you here this afternoon. Amen.
If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.